Okay. So intravenous access and medication administration. Let's start on through here. Um, we'll talk about withdrawing medications from ampules today. Uh, the ampules we don't have anymore, but there's a chance we may get them back. So we will talk about ampules today. Um, and then mostly, we'll, as far as withdrawing medications, we'll talk about it from um, single dose or multi-dose vials. For us, it's a, it's, we always treat them as if they're a single dose vial. We can, we can use them multiple times for one patient, but we won't use them after the patient is done, okay? Um, insulin injection video, I'm not gonna end up showing that, but I will, we will talk briefly about it. IM injection, we will talk about. Um, and then there's, the, it's talking about videos, which I was unable to get the links to work, but we'll, we'll be able to illustrate it here on our, we'll get one of our IV arms out here at break. Um, let's talk about the six rights of drug administration. It used to be the five, now it's the six. Um, so, uh, right person, so is this the right person for the medication? Is it the right presentation? Um, the right drug, it has to be the correct medication, the right dose for the medication, the right time, and the right time, I think if you guys just think of that as this is the, it meets all of my indications. It is the right presentation. It's funny how some of these kind of mix together a little bit. What about right time in terms of the date? Um, Does that fall under right time? It, is that what you're thinking? That's the date? Like it's not expired or something? Right drug. Yeah, I think I think you could put it that way. I also think about the timing of when you give the drug and how fast you deliver it with this too. Like, how fast am I supposed to give this drug? What's the time frame of which I deliver it over? Rapid IV push, slow IV push, that kind of thing too. So it's a lot of it falls into that time, I think. The route would be IM versus IV versus sub-Q versus sublingual, you know, all these different ways we can give medications. I was trying to think like a good way to think through these in my head to, uh -huh. that would be sequential. Like, okay, it's the right patient because I have the indications and I don't have the contraindications. The right drug for what I think I need. Uh, the right time to give it and uh, the right route. And then I was going to follow up with dose at the end because until you determine your route, right. you don't know what your dose is going to be. Good that, point. Is there a certain way that you think about it? Or? No. I've lost all this, so, um, and I apologize for that. I definitely do, but not, not in a proper way, and it does lend itself to missing things. So especially as a, as a new medic, you should have these things in your mind to make sure I'm not missing one aspect of why I'm giving this medication or how I'm giving it. So I do like having a mnemonic like this or something in your mind that says, I'm gonna remember the six rights of my medication before I give every single one. And we'll talk about um, giving these medications and then how we, how we uh, make sure that we have buy-in from our medic partner whenever we give a medication. We want another set of eyes on everything we're doing so that we don't screw up. Because medications are dangerous, some more than others, but definitely giving a med should be very thoughtful um, uh, medical asepsis. We'll talk just briefly about how uh, we're making sure that when we give any of our medications that we're doing it without introducing germs. Um, there's, uh, Jason Garratt is going to come and do a discussion this week for us with, uh, about uh, infectious 
process, cleaning, things that uh, for us to make us better at making sure that we keep our equipment clean and that we keep our environments clean. And he's not going to focus so much on the like getting our, our site clean, our IV site clean, stuff like that. But he'll be more talking about equipment. So some of that stuff falls into this. Like medical environment free of pathogens is um, medical asepsis. Um, then we get on to sterile environment uh, free of all forms of life, uh, extensive heat or chemical, uh, medically clean techniques, carefully handling, careful careful handling of sterile equipment to prevent contamination and then disinfectant toxic to living tissue. So again, I'm gonna let Jason cover most of these. These, these definitions um, are, are le legitimate definitions that we should understand. And I'm gonna make that sound whenever I tap on here. Um, we will, um, the, the, the different, different definitions will help us know when we need to be alert to certain kinds of disinfecting. This really came into play when we decided we had to do a better job of uh, disinfecting our UE scope blades. And before that was the glide scope blades and that we had to have the hospital do it from now on because we weren't doing a good enough job. So the hospital does all of our disinfecting. Every time we use a blade inside someone's mouth, then that is considered um, at the higher level of disinfecting that we are supposed to to put it through the hospital's process. Now, um, there's a bunch of controversy even in our own department about what, what level of disinfecting we need for our equipment. And per the manufacturer, we are allowed with the new UE scopes, but we started this with the glide scopes, which are much harder to, to disinfect. Uh, and we've kept going with the new UE scope, but because it has the plastic blade that slides up over the, um, the wand, the wand, technically doesn't need to be sterilized at the hospital as we still do now. But um, that may change in the future. They've ruined about four of our UE wands where the heat that they use has actually melted the end where the camera sticks out and caused uh, a defect there that, that doesn't allow us to use anymore. We have to get new ones. So the UE scope people have been upset with us because they've replaced, they've replaced at least four of them that had been ruined at the hospital getting disinfected. And they're saying, you don't have to disinfect them that way. And uh, so anyway, we've, we've talked about changing it, but right now they do it for free and it's definitely cleaner than we would do otherwise. Our stylets are also cleaned that way at the hospital. CMS1 does that? Yeah. And then do yeah. we have spares that go on the reexamination? Yes. So you'll get a spare out of the supply room or from EMS-1, and they will take that blade in and get it done. It's usually done within four hours at the Where hospital. It's downstairs. You know, when you walk all the way down the hallway towards the cardiology area, where the, um, do you know where, if you go to the back side of the hospital, um, and labor and delivery is kind of back there, and there's that drive-through area closer yeah. to the hospital itself, that drive-through area is where the cardiology kind of wing is, where people walk in to get that consultations and everything done. Um, right, right next to that area, there's a stairwell that goes down. You can go downstairs, turn in your equipment downstairs there, and then go back and get it. Just... Do we do that after code? Like, uh, yes, yes. Okay. But again, let EMS-1 manage that. You just give oh, them your dirty blade, they and they will manage it, yeah. You're supposed to technically put it into, uh, clean it off as best you can, Put it into a Ziploc bag with some Steris stuff. It's this uh, wetting agent that keeps it from getting 
dried out because the bio burden, the, the chunks of tissue and stuff that might be on there uh, are not supposed to dry because then they're harder to, to properly disinfect. So you will ziplock that bag shut. EMS-1 will manage that from there on out. <laughs> Good stuff, huh? Uh, antiseptic. Uh, not toxic to living tissue. Treat all blood and body fluids as potentially infectious. Properly handle needles and sharps before and after patient use uh, can prevent accidental needle sticks. Our needle stick potential is far less than it used to be. I already told you guys I poked Tony McGuinn in the chest once with a needle, right? Um, we used to have big long needles that would just hang off of the end of our IV catheters and they were a big risk all the time of poking people. Now, our biggest risk of poking people, I believe, is uh, when we do an IM injection. And then if someone doesn't push hard enough on that needle to retract it, there's that darn needle sticking out there. So that's our biggest risk, I think. The next biggest risk is the springboard of the blood on the dextro strip. If you're handing it to someone else and they're holding the finger, then there's potential trouble there. I want the person managing the finger to also manage that deck strip themselves. And you should always have your eye protection on for that very problem. But I've seen it before where someone else is trying to be helpful and they've already got the thing loaded and you, you're now sitting there working on a drop of blood like that and you're holding the finger over towards them and now this other person is coming over to try to get that blood off and now the thing flings up and you got blood in your eye, you know? So that's the, that's the danger, I think, probably, Maybe even the worst danger we have right now is that springboard kind of flinging blood uh, because we've taken care of almost all of our needle stick potentials. Oh, that's uh, speaking of flinging fluid, <laughs> uh, I have uh, on the shift, we had an attempted IV that was not successful. So okay. it removed the catheter, all right. still attached to the flush, and was given to me to dispose of. And so I, I just kind of folded it in half to to dispose of it, and when it went down into the hole, then it kind of opened up again and flipped over my face. Ah, there's so, another potential problem. So Good. With those when you get so you're talking about the plastic catheter is now full of blood. To, it was it was mostly fluid. Yep. That was a little bit blood tinged, I would say. Yeah. All right. Um, that, so I'd been inside the the vein the patient, but it, the, it wasn't. A, it was an unsuccessful IV, so okay. they pulled it out, so there was a little tinging of blood. Yes. And then it, when, I, when I let go of it, it uh -huh. opened up again and it flicked off. Damn it. Damn it. So how do we learn from that, right? Like, you guys will be handling that exact scenario. That will happen to you where you've, you've now pulled a catheter out or you're on scene and you've given... You've given sugar to someone through an IV, and now you're going to leave them on scene. You're removing that catheter now. That is a dangerous blood-filled vessel and could end up potentially flinging blood at you guys. So. Good. Yeah, but we should always treat everyone as if they're infected, right? Yeah, Old people in nursing homes, apparently they have a lot of uh, STDs because they get around in the old nursing home. Dude, so I, I didn't write it up. I didn't, it's always a memory ward. Go in my mouth, as <laughs> yeah. far as I could tell, I was wearing eye protection. Actually, I don't think it went in. Yeah. I mean, unattacked skin, so I didn't. Good, good. Good, good. Right on. We'll, we'll find out in a few days. We're going to talk about all these different um, ways of giving medication, percutaneous, 
pulmonary enter enteral. Does anyone say that differently? Enteral and uh, parenteral. Parenteral. I'm going to mess the parenteral. Um, uh, let's see. Percutaneous, applied to and absorbed through the skin or mucous membrane. Easy to administer. Uh, transdermal route, slow, st steady absorption, uh, lotions, ointments, creams, foams, wet dressing, adhesive packed applications, or suppositories. Yeah. yeah. Enteral. 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 Thank you. Mucous membranes, um, tongue, cheek, eyes, nose, and ears. So Narcan, prime example of the nose for mucous membrane medication, which again is percutaneous medication administration. There's, a, there's actually, this is pretty broad of all the, the ways of giving it. This is the one that seems to hit at more than just one route like I am, you know, so, um, Zach? I saw a picture in there, the oral medicate, like in the ear? Do we oh, we don't, yeah, I know it's in there, and I took that slide out because we don't do that, right. but yeah, it is a, apparently medics are allowed to do a couple more things than I will show you here today, so um, there is some routes like or uh, in the ear or, there's a couple other ones I saw too that I took out of here, but. Yeah, but buckle we could possibly give. That's between the cheek and the gum, you know. I think is it? Yeah, that could be like glucose. Sub Q. I did take sub Q out too, because we don't do sub Q anymore. <laughs> we do have eye drops, so there is eye drops. And there is going to be um, uh, the 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 cheek. We could say that is our um, that is our glucose. So, um, but our primary mucous membrane or sublingual will be nitroglycerin. We will give that a lot under the tongue. Uh, let's see. Yep. Do we not carry nitroglycerin tablets anymore? Oh, we should have them on the BLS rigs because they're cheaper, and we we carry the spray on the ALS rigs. And it, that was a agreement after they jacked up the price of nitro. It used to be like fifteen dollars per squirt vial. Now it's like three hundred seventy-five dollars or something. Oh, shutting yeah. the front door? Are you serious? Yeah, just I think there's been a lot of manipulation at the, the pharmaceutical door. companies for stuff uh, like this. How do we know that each spray is actually zero point four milligrams? We know because we trust that if we squirt it all the way down, then it is metered to be that. I don't know how to, how to trust it more than that, you know. But if you're giving a, uh, maybe a partial spray, you're not going to get it. So you should definitely shove that all the way down with every one of your uh, trigger. And I've had it where the first one doesn't come out fully. So they always spray away. Yeah. So a lot of people will do the same thing. See how there's nothing coming out, first couple, two had nothing. So 
And the third one was pretty lame. And this one was stronger. So you're right in that you should make sure with probably a side spray off, you know, somewhere. Maybe it's down low, but not so low that you're tipping it like that. You know what I mean? Like just get a couple sprays like that. We almost always expire these out. So it's okay to spray a couple off to verify that you get the full dose on your, on your spray. Good point. Yeah, it smells good. It's minty. I didn't know that either. Now I'm mad, Zach. Damn it. <laughs> you guys, I don't think you'll ever remember, you know, which eye, OD for the right eye, OS for the left eye here. But when you give eye medications, there is technically... Um, you know, some proper ways to document it. But don't worry about that. Just say uh, right eye or left eye, right? In the book, it says that, and then it's like, but just yeah. go with right eye. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you're seeing where they're asking you to put that. I didn't bring our medication here today, but it's probably in one of our kits as far as our, um, our eye medication. It is rarely used, and you can never leave it on scene with someone. We'll talk about the eye stuff later when What's, we do that. Why wouldn't it be? You can't have it. Is it? If you leave it on scene and someone has a legitimate injury, then they can continue to dose with the medication and not go manage a problem that could be there. So we can give it to help them and say, you know, you have to get a, go to the eye doctor and, and then take the medication back. But we can't, we can't leave them with a vial of that med. So it's like a behavioral thing that you're preventing, right? Yes, you're preventing them from just using it for days and not managing this this potential injury to their eye that might happen. Is that, is that the only one who didn't know you weren't supposed to put the drop in your eye? You're supposed to put it on the counter tab? I, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I would have dropped it right in the eyeball before I saw this slide here. So, yeah. And uh, honestly, like, I think pulling down the eye, maybe that is a, maybe when you drop it in, it might seem less shocking to the person if you kind of hit that tissue a little bit rather than right on the eyeball so it could be good if anyone you've seen Aaron um, uh, Fleming he is constantly dropping eye drops in his eyes he's super good at it but um, most people are not really good at dropping eye drops in their own eyes so you're gonna find that when you're trying to give this to someone who has a painful eye already it's gonna be it's gonna be hard so maybe this method they're showing is actually a good thing um, so we carry two different medications that we tend to give up the nose. We can give a lot of other ones up the nose, but then the main ones are our nasal spray for reducing the kind of size of the vessels, kind of shrinking the vessels with something like epinephrine, um, Afrin, yeah. And that is similar to Epi in that it will shrink the vessels down and all the other tissue around to try to reduce the uh, amount of, of uh, bleeding that you have from a nosebleed. I forget the medication, but is it ketamine that we could also give uh, via MAD? We can give a, yeah, we can give Versed yeah. via MAD and rectally. And, uh, I think it was procedure. Yes. You yeah. Said you can give Versed rectally? Yeah. You just squirt it up there? <laughs> like, like with a MAD device? Um, generally, that is done with the end of a feeding tube. Some people have chosen to give it with a big giant catheter, like a 14 gauge catheter, but it seems a little bit rough on the rectal thing, especially because you're usually giving it to peds yeah. uh, for seizures. So, um, 
So that tends to be a small feeding tube that you can usually fit over the end of a, um, you know, one of, the, one of the medications that you'll be using or one of the things that you would drop medications, a Phenort, uh, is Rob Wilson's old term for it. Damn it, I brought a bunch. Um, then you could, you could fit a feeding tube over the top of one of these. Um, the mat is supposed to be really painful, especially Versed for some reason. It's like super hypertonic or something. It is really painful to the mucous membrane there. And so rectal would not be painful. But that little, uh, this is a Phenort or a vial access cannula um, that is removable on all of these. But you can slip a small feeding tube over the top of that, cut off the feeding tube, you know? So you just have the tip of it where it has the exit from the sides and you can slip it over that with a friction fit and then you can, you can put a little lubricating jelly on that and you can usually just introduce that right into the rectum and then squirt it up in there. So we'll do some practice with that. Right. Say that again, the last part. My trauma is for sure not sterile. Right. And feeding tubes act technically don't have to be sterile. Right. Just like our intubation stuff doesn't technically have to be sterile. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying though. You could potentially introduce some germs, so please keep your shears clean. But yeah, sticking that over the top hopefully won't be a problem, especially if you're putting something in a rectum. You know, yeah. Uh, and then the other big one is, is Narcan, right? I mean, that's our biggest nasal medication that we give all the time. Um, uh, let's see, patient blows her nose, tilt the head backwards, and then give your medication. Uh, pulmonary medication administration. Medication is administered by inhalation, uh, nebulized. Uh, we all know how to set up a nebulizer and use that. You guys should have that down pretty easily. Um, the primary med that we're going to give is albuterol, and the other one is regular cardiac epi in the uh, same nebulizer and giving that for someone that we can't seem to turn around with albuterol. It would only be after we've already been giving albuterol. You probably have the same, you know, chamber already ready to go and it's now empty from the albuterol and now you can squ squirt in say five milliliters, uh, half of your cardiac epi in there, screw it back together and give it. And what would the cardiac epi, what is? Uh... It would be for asthma that's not responding to albuterol. Okay. Mm -hmm. Could, can you mix epi and albuterol, or do you have to give them separately? Um, we do not have to give them separately, but I would say that typically, so you know what doses you're giving, you want to know that you gave such and such amount. So usually we try to use up what's in the nebulizer before we say add something else to it. Um, a lot of people will give two fish of albuterol, so 2.5, 2.5, so total five milligrams of albuterol, but you should know by the time you get to the hospital, if it's not gone all the way, you might have to make a guesstimation, but typically you will say, I've got five milligrams in that nebulizer. And then if you were to have also given epi, then you wanna know, did you give all five? Cause then you have to say, I think I gave about four milligrams of albuterol. And then I gave, you know, half of this, 
So I gave 0.5 of epi, but I don't know how much is in. It's a little bit confusing. It's nice to be able to define your doses, but if you can't, you can't. If something's not working and you're partway through your five milligrams of albuterol and now you've, uh, you just dump that out and put your epi in, that would be what I would do. Dump it out so you're not so mixing and, and then you could possibly use the same one. But. It's kind of a broad question, but is uh, milligrams, grams, micrograms, is that all like a universal, like does a whole world use that? Yes. Yep. Because it is the metric system and that is used across all medical anywhere you go in the world. Yeah. So there's the albuterol tube, the fish you're calling them, and then there's the saline. Yeah. Which is just water, right? Right. And I know part of my internet just wanted to ask when are we using the aerosolized saline? Saline is going to rarely be used. So um, it is used, I'm trying to think of when we even actually use it anymore. There's sometimes people will use it when they don't want to give the medication to someone, but they want to, they want to just nebulize some moist air for them. Um, but that would be, I, it's a rare thing. I can't think of the last time I used it just to give moist air to someone. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think maybe if you felt like their heart rate was already really jacked up from the albuterol, albuterol you had already given and now you just want to give the saline because you're concerned about them having, you know, some strider or something. You're trying to moisten the air, but I, I don't know. So if you're going to nebulize epinephrine, you just take your cardiac and you just drop it in as itself. You don't have to use a saline. That's correct. If you use the cardiac dose, maybe that's where we might think of it. If you're giving epinephrine like if you give 0.5 of the 1 to 1000 the, 1, the 000, 1 to 10, if you gave it in the 1 to 1000 okay. the concentrated little vial yes. and you drew up half a cc of that and pushed it into your into your nebulizer then you would need to add saline fish to oh, then right. dilute it so that you could give it right, right. dan i'm looking at the copd and asthma protocol mm -hmm. and there's uh, an epinephrine after Zofenex or albuterol, and then it actually talks about giving prednisone in severe disease. But mm -hmm. then Which is an oral uh, swallow pain. medication, but yeah. Okay. And then, um, so it just talks it's about IM, and then IV is the last course. It doesn't mm -hmm. talk about aerosolized. Right. So I think in our pediatric um, uh, hand tevi, we might be able to find the epinephrine in there. And uh, then we'd have to look at the pediatric portion uh, for asthma. I think it mentions epi in there. So this is this is possibly all ages, though, we can use it for all ages, but typically it's for peds. Yeah, it's here. Yes, and if you have someone that has what you believe to be epiglottitis, an infection of their epiglottis, then that would be a medication to try to use that might shrink the tissue a little bit. It's it's epinephrine, yeah, in the nebulized form, yeah. It's a rare use, but a possibility, and not well documented in our in our protocols because they just tell us to do it, and yeah, and then not necessarily have a good protocol to support it. Let's see, oral medications. Use standard precautions. Okay, medications. Um, uh, let's see, assemble the nebulizer set oxygen source. It says five to eight liters per minute for your nebulized oral. Is that? I don't know how to say that, but. Um, 
Place a nebulizer in the patient's mouth. You can hold this. This is not like when you give someone medication uh, for the nitrous oxide where they're supposed to hold it themselves. If you have to hold this for them or set it up in the non-rebreather mask with uh, just using the mask portion to be able to strap onto them so that the nebulizer will continue to go into their, their mouth without them holding it, you can do that. It's totally legal with uh, nebulized meds. With the CPAP and when you think you hear wheezes, it seems like it would be difficult sometimes to discern wheezes in a really sick CHF patient. I mean, is it or what are some, because it says if you don't have wheezes, it's, you don't do it. Right. So how, is it pretty, what, a lot of our guys, a lot of our guys just want to add another med to someone who's uh, respiratory and sick. And they say, I may not have heard, you know, wheezes, but I did it anyway because there's so little downside to it. Um, but technically, if you're trying to define someone that needs albuterol, you should have some wheezes in your lung sounds if you were going to give it. Is there, but, okay, but a lot there's very little downside. Very little downside to giving it. And so it may be that they had pneumonia and that you probably didn't actually need this, but uh, someone that has congestive heart failure or pneumonia can sometimes also have wheezes. In which case, giving it. Or if, if they're prescribed it already, could you say, like, they're already prescribed this, they tried to use their inhaler a couple times, you know, like, could you justify it that way? Yeah, you could definitely justify it that way. Okay. You can easily justify giving albuterol. So if it was if it was pneumonia and you thought it was an exacerbation of COPD, yeah. and you gave albuterol, would there be any other complications of the, pneumonia? No, not really. I mean, you're going to jack up their heart rate a little bit. So there's this possibility that you're increasing myocardial oxygen demand and kind of, kind of driving up the, the need for, um, or driving up the heart rate, which could end up causing some anxiety, some stress feeling, you know. But, uh, but again, if you've got, the reason you would give albuterol to someone in that scenario, if you didn't hear wheezes, is probably they were a pretty sick person and you're trying to throw everything at them. If you had someone that you think might have pneumonia, you don't hear any wheezes, but you, you think they might benefit from this, um, I think it would be harder for you to justify giving albuterol if they have a SAT of like 94%. And you give a little bit of oxygen, their SAT goes up. Yeah, you think, oh, they have pneumonia, would, they help, would it help to give albuterol? I don't hear any wheezes, so I'm not going to. The time you'd give albuterol would be the time that you have someone with a SAT of 80, and you've already given O2, you've already given, you know, fluids because you think, yeah, they might have albuterol or they might have pneumonia. So I got to give a little bit of fluid to this person. But in addition to that, I'm going to throw this albuterol at them because I'm hoping the um, pneumonia might have some, have triggered some airway restriction because of the infectious process of pneumonia. They may have some airways that'll open up a little bit because I gave albuterol. It's, it's, uh, there's very, no one will criticize you for that. Okay. Someone short of breath and you gave albuterol um, and you didn't hear wheezes, then no one's going to criticize you. You're like, hey, they just gave them everything so, they could. Because we, yeah, we had that patient at the drop-in center the other mm -hmm. day where it was, uh, they were the second patient, like we were there for another person and they're like, hey, check out this person over here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, uh, <coughs> uh, it turned out like, 
so Derek and I took one patient, and then Marie went with the AD unit that arrived on scene with, and transported the other patient. Oh, okay. Was sicker than our first patient. But, so then she had me listen to lung sounds once they got to the hospital. Uh huh. And it was just very interesting because I had bilateral kind of junky rockers. What I thought, I was like, I think that's kind of rockers. Lung sounds in the lowers, but like, and then the upper. Uh, upper left, I think, is where I also had a lot of kind of, it was like, is that wheezing? Is that just like bad bronchi? Like, it was like really hard to tell. Yeah. And she was thinking, like, so it was a, it was a per patient with a history of COPD who has pneumonia, who has pneumonia, and we checked later and he had pneumonia. So, right. So he, are, and he always has a COPD. Yeah. And then he has pneumonia, and I'm sure those two can play off each other. Yeah. One can create the other. So opening up that person with some albuterol is probably just fine. Yeah, she right? did. I, don't, I, don't, I think she just started a lot. It was from the drop-in center. So mm -hmm. it, but I don't think, I don't think she did. It, okay. Anything, okay. Okay. Yeah. Cap, do you have any good resources for like lung sounds? Because that's one of the weaknesses I have. Is just like, is it crackles? Wrong guy. What you know? Strider wheezing. There are some online stuff you can find, but I would say you're. They're, they're never the same as listening yourself. Yeah. So even if they try to illustrate like coarse ronchi sounds and then fine rowels on a video or on YouTube or something, they're never gonna be the same as you actually having those things in your ears and listening to a real human. So it's good to get a baseline maybe from that, but mostly I would like you to listen to as many people as you can. So you know what normal sounds like and then you know what abnormal sounds like. And if you can listen to some young humans, these are probably people you would never think to do lung sounds on, but if you can do it, that's ideal. Because then you hear what healthy, good lung sounds sound like. You guys can even listen to each other and you'll hear like air going in and out. It sounds crisp, it sounds not crisp, but it sounds like it flows easily in and out and it actually is kind of loud. Like you can hear good air movement going in and out on nice, clean lungs and then when it's something wrong, something's different than that, you'll now recognize it because you've listened to a bunch. So listen to almost every single patient you're on, unless it's just logistically not easy to do because they got a bunch of layers on and you don't intend to take all that off, fine. But otherwise, try to listen to almost everyone. And I'll tell you, I'm kind of bad at lung sounds, so I'm gonna tell you this right now. Um, as far as the number of places you'll be told to listen to lungs, there is a tremendous number of of different ways to do it. Like there will be, listen to the front, listen to the back, listen up high, listen down low, all these, listen at the side, all those things will come at you from um, different textbooks and different things that you'll read. But if I, from my perspective, the best way to listen to lung sounds is at the back and one side to the other from the same location you just listened. So if you're listening on the back of that dude right there, it would be down low first, and then the opposite side down low at the same location on the opposite side, and then go up, listen, and then go over, listen, and then go up, listen, and then go over, listen. So it's kind of a zigzag across the back, you know? Listen to it that way, usually three locations per side lower, mid, upper. That should get you enough information to intelligently tell the doctor that there were rowels midway up on both sides or there was lung sounds are clear and equal on both sides, all fields. So you can define things with those six locations of listening 
And if you can't get to the back, which is, which is a problem frequently, someone is just too short of breath, they're leaning up against the back of your gurney and they're working hard to breathe and you, you're having a hard time leaning them forward because they got a big belly. And when you lean them forward, they get more and more short of breath and it's difficult for all six locations to be able to ask that person to, to do that. If that's how sick your patient is, then you can listen. I think then the next best place is on the sides. There is, you know, breast tissue, there's big people. It's difficult to listen at the front reliably. And some people listen right here, but that's just the top. You're not really comparing anything else if all you can do is listen here. So for me, the best is the back, six locations. After that, it would be the side, down low on each side, mid on each side, and then here on each side. So that's if you had to listen at the side and the front, it would be here, here, and here. And then, because you don't want to get clear up in someone's armpit to listen, right? So here, here, and here, um, if you had to do the front, and then the back would be the best, and listen down low and all the way up the back. And six is enough. You know how hard it is for someone to give you a deep breath in and out? And you do that to them, not only six times at the back, <sighs> through your mouth, please. You always got to tell them through the mouth. If they're breathing through their nose, you're going to hear nasal stuff with it. It doesn't sound as good. So please breathe in and out through your mouth. Um, again, again, you know, and then you do that to them on the front too. Six more locations. They're now passing out on you, you know, so it is, yeah, I'm feeling dizzy already. Um, okay. Got sidetracked, but lung sounds are critical. You guys listen now all the time to everyone. Um, talking about our nebulizer here. That's a different nebulizer than we use. Meter dose inhaler. Is it for the CPAP? Is that technically? Maybe it is. Yeah, that that tubing could be like our CPAP in that it has enough pressure to. Yeah, we just have to turn 90 degrees, right? Like do either direct from the O2 or then you turn it to get Oh, yeah, and there should be one, well, maybe it's in the supply room right now, but that's not the right blue bag I'm looking at right there. Um, we should have a nebulizer here that we can end up going through. Um, MDI, your meter dose inhaler uh, in our kits, I think that we should be using our meter dose inhaler with the aero chamber every time. So you guys have, um, I, I'm sure we have one in here, so we'll just get it out right now and show everyone. Put four puffs in every time. Four. four. Uh, and more if you want. Again, there's no, specifically when we talk about albuterol, and that's what we have in our nebulizers now. We used to have Zopinex ones, but um, we, it says in the protocol a dose, but then it says you can give continuous, which means there's no limit to how much we can give on our albuterol. This might be an old one. Yeah, this one's still Zopinex, but the new ones will be albuterol. Zopinex is really almost exactly the same thing, but it's not supposed to have as much tachycardia effects, but it was shown over time that actually it's just the same as albuterol. So don't spend more for this when you don't need to, so. It's supposed to be more selective on, on agonist. Yeah, more of just a beta-2 agonist and less of the beta-1. So you removed it from your MDI and put it in the aero chamber? Yes. 
So some people, you'll see some of the medics give it this way with this, right? And the person may know how to use this well because they already have a history of asthma and they'll just take this right from you. I'm out on mine, let me have yours, you know, and they'll go after it. But technically, we can do a better job of giving four in there and let them breathe that in. And uh, we can give four again as many times as we want and then they can just take breaths in. Uh, Technically speaking, they say that this device neb or um, aerosolizes or creates smaller part particles than our nebulizers do. And that someone should be better off getting this deeper into their lungs than our nebulizers. I think that could be true. But if you guys have a sick patient, this should not be where you start. This is probably something you end up hooking in line to your intubation tube and using it for that with an elbow here. So that way you can still nebulize for someone who's intubated. But um, I would like you guys to use your nebulizer uh, from you know, our rigs for, for most of our patients. And I see people get better. They've been using something like this at home already. You get there and use this and it makes a big difference. It seems to work. And why is it? Maybe because we deliver this with 100% oxygen. So the part particles may not be nebulized or as small, but because it's continuous and we could just let them keep breathing this in and out with every single one instead of giving different puffs and having them breathe in and then holding it away from their mouth for some period of time, doing it again, like this is just continuous. This is either on a, an honored breather across their face just continuously nebulizing or they're holding it there and continuously nebulizing plus um, they are getting oxygen at the same time. So this seems to really work well. So I would always start with this for someone who's short of breath. And the arrow chamber at the end there is where your BDM hooks into? Yes, and this has a uh, device on here to adapt to different things. Our BVM is, I think, can you open up the other yellow kit and confirm which BVM we have in there? We might as well talk about these logistics right now. This elbow on this bag valve mask, this elbow was ideal and it could be stolen off of here. This cannot. Yeah, sounds good. Talking about endotracheal uh, medications, it, it does mention it here as a possibility. Um, Uh, let's see. How do we say this one, Dan? Enteral. Enteral. Medication administered. Delivered. Uh, delivery of medication to be absorbed through the gastrointestinal tract. Um, we give, I think, three medications this way. We give uh, prednisone, Tylenol, and uh, a Torvastatin. Yes. Are there any others? Aspirin. Aspirin's chewed, though. I'm thinking that we swallow. That we, it's we not. Zofran tablets, Zofran tablets that don't dissolve. They don't dissolve. We, well, I thought we, we carry three type. We carry IV Zofran, sublingual dissolving tablets, and tablets uh, ours. Ours just dissolve for the Zofran. So, and then our Zyrtec also dissolves. So, as far as swallowing pills, you have one more than we do. Then, in that you have one more. Uh, allergy medication uh, type med that can go. Oh, interesting. I guess technically, yeah, you're swallowing that. It's not a pill. 
but you're swallowing the activated charcoal. Are you Good meant point. to absorb the charcoal, or is the charcoal meant to bind with the substances that are already in your stomach? You yeah, you should be ultimately pooping all of that charcoal out after it's pulled in every other thing it can draw into it before you poop. Yeah. You're right. I mean, it is going through. It, it is as if you were swallowing a big sludgy pill. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, through, and it says you can use a gastric tube or rectally, and it's considered. It's funny because they just can. They just talked about this being a different route before, right? When we talked about rectal earlier, a suppository earlier. It was making it sound like that was part of the other route. Oh, I think it's mucosal, but it's still considered enteral because it's part of the same. Okay. You're going in the tube. Yeah. You've got mucus glands in your rectum. And you do. In when you're giving nitro sublingual, you have uh, absorption through the, the sublingual area there. And that's still oral. I hate these words. So if you... <laughs> something that's administered orally that's, that is absorbed, like sublingual or something, is that not considered enteral? That's what I was trying to define myself, because when we went back a few slides, I thought it was labeled under the other. So I thought even if it was absorbed mucosally, it's still going into the mouth, so it's still enteral. Let me just, it it's, refers to this as mucous membranes. Mucous membranes, dissolved tablets or sprays, sublingual medication absorbed through the mucous membrane beneath the tongue. Hmm. Well, I, I guess they mix them a little bit in their definitions. Can we talk about these gastric tubes? Um, we're working on the RSI checklist, and that's uh -huh. something that comes up, like decompression of the gastric system, and then like usage of nasogastric, orogastric tubes. How often are you doing that? I mean, it says RSI checklist, you're doing that every time? Uh, you know, we should probably do it every time, but we frequently, no, not usually. Usually it's just to decompress the uh, abdomen, which may be full of air. So, so you're getting it down there, you're just creating a route for air to escape if there was right, trapped air? Right, exactly, so that it can improve your CPR, without having all this pressure up against the lungs, you know, it'll allow more filling of the lungs if you are able to decompress the abdomen. Do you get fluids coming out of that? Usually, yeah. Some I mean, typically we are going to have to push it all the way down into the gut and we'll have like our 60cc syringe and we'll be drawing back to confirm uh, we're in place okay. and then draw back hopefully a whole vial of air or a whole vial of bile and whatever you might Your be able to get out of there. And then you can squirt it into the garbage and pull again and try to continue to decompress the abdomen. So I did that on our CPR. Uh, once we got the Lucas device on, he put the OG tube down. Uh-huh. And then they just had somebody press on the stomach. Did it, did it, did you, could you hear air coming out the end? Uh, I couldn't from across the room, but um, I think it was almost just a checked box just to make sure that we didn't get air. Yeah. 
Um, because they could, he couldn't confirm that first place in the two. Right. Possibly. Okay. I would say that I've been unlucky at feeling like I got a lot of air out from the gut for whatever reason. I think that the um, once you get that NG tube down or oral gastric tube down, they're really the same thing. Um, once you get them down in there, it just depends on whether you put it through the mouth or you put it through the nose. Uh, and, and you're now in the gut, right? If the gut is full of bile or something, you should be able to draw that out with a syringe. Um, if you, for instance, are partway down and you didn't quite make it into the gut and you draw back on your tube, the uh, esophagus will just collapse against there. You won't pull anything out. So you have to get far enough in to get into the stomach. Will you get a suction like this? And then, yeah, you'll like be pulling and nothing will come out if you're, if you're drawing that esophagus shut. And it'll stay, it'll collapse against itself anyway. It's not like the rings on your trachea that'll keep that tube open. Your esophagus is always flat unless you're having puke come up out of it or you got a bunch of air in that tube for some reason. So typically though, you have to get that NG tube all the way down into the gut and you'll know that when you're able to draw back and get some fluid. Whether you get air back in your syringe, I just don't seem to have that for some reason. Maybe the NG tube always seems to lay downward instead of upward when I've been drawing, trying to get air out, but I typically get fluid out and not air. But it is, is a, a great way to attempt to try to decompress or deflate. Whether you'd be successful pushing on the gut and having air travel up through that tube and out through the mouth, I've tried and I've always felt like I could never hear air traveling up out through there and felt kind of like it was, for whatever reason, it hangs up against something or, it's, or the stomach is flat enough, I just can't seem to, to hear a bunch of air come up out of that NG tube. So it seems like in order to be your best chance of success, I believe, would be pulling directly with a syringe, applying direct manual pressure to pulling out uh, the fluid or the air. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Sean. Uh, so we're, we're aiming for 22 to 23 centimeters of the teeth with an ET tube. Is there mm -hmm. a standard measurement for OG or NG? No, there's just some marks at the end you try to get between. Okay. And, and when I say that, you're really... More than that, you're really just trying to see if you can get something to come out of there. If you're not down deep enough, you'll get nothing. If you're down deep enough, you should get something, and then you'll know you're in the right place. And if you keep going, it's just coiling up in the stomach, which is not a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And you could hypothetically go through the stomach into the duodenum and then into the small intestine in which case you probably would get nothing again. But what are the chances of that, right? The way the stomach is shaped, you're gonna coil that up inside the stomach and probably never make it out, out of the stomach. If someone has an, uh, a, a gastric bypass, then it might be more likely because the stomach is really just part of the tube, then they almost eliminate the whole stomach with the gastric bypass. In which case you might be able to just travel right on down through stuff. But. That would be a unique situation. Not that many people have gastric bypass. Can you hook up like the feedback or the suction unit to an NG tube? Yes, tube you can. So let's say you would pulled out a lot of fluid with your first couple attempts with that 60cc syringe. Then you can take your uh, suction unit and hook it up to there. And when you see the, the tubing comes with a little white plastic adapter, like a like a male adapter, I guess, that would fit to that and fit onto your NG tube. And you could just leave that thing turned on and just try to draw everything out of that stomach. If you're successful, you might as well, because then you could pull everything out of there. With the, the NG or OG tube, are you just feeding it down in your, um, 
this is when you're already intubated, right? Is there a specific route that you go to? A lot of guys, because they don't like the idea of shoving things through the nose and causing a nosebleed, they'll frequently go through that space that's available next to where the tube is held with a tube holder. There's a nice open space there that you can just push your uh, NG tube down. And then not through the tube itself, no. Next to the tube, but in the tube holder, there's an opening, you know, where you can set it through. And so, well, and our eye gels actually have that, so we could talk about that at the same time. Okay. Gastric tube administration. This is something that we just don't use, but hypothetically, it's useful. If you guys are ever asked to replace an NG tube at home for a pediatric patient who's cared for by parents and they're struggling to put in the NG tube, um, this is something you might be asked to do. So you as a medic are allowed to do NG tubes. Um, and so you might find yourself uh, trying to confirm that you're in the right place. And we don't do Foley catheters, so don't worry about doing any uh, urinary catheters, but you will be able to do an NG tube. So the way to confirm is you have got to be able to draw back some bile, some stump, stump contents, or else you're not in. You have to confirm with that. So um, otherwise, there's this horrible hypothetical that you could actually be in the trachea and that you could end up having mom now hook up the something that looks like insure in this bag of fluids next to the baby with a pump and you could end up having her hook that up and fill the baby's lung up with Infamil or, you know, Ensure. So if you're ever involved at home confirming that an NG tube is in place, and I've done it a couple times, um, you have got to pull up stomach content. You will not pull stomach contents out of a lung. So you should be able to know, hey, this is bile, this is a yellowish, this, you know, fluid. It's not going to be you know, snot or something that you're pulling out, which won't come up the tube all the way, so. Could you introduce a little bit of O2 and, and check for epigastric sound, which is what you would want, right? Mm-hmm, interesting. Um, I believe that you could. You could be drawing back, um, you know, and confirm that you have stomach contents, and then take that same syringe, squirt whatever out of it, and hook up with some air and listen right over the epigastrium and just squirt a little bit of air and see if you hear it. I mean, that might be a way to confirm. I mean, you could draw back a little bit, yeah. I think that would be doable. But honestly, I think the, the best way to check is just confirm that you have good fluid coming out uh, from your NG. Um, would any of this take place with an NPA? Or are we doing any like NPA and then gastric tube, or is this just conscious patients with, uh, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a rare, rare thing. Most of the time, if parents have children that have the need for an NG tube at home, my youngest had to for about uh, a month after he got out of children's for failure to thrive. He had esophagitis just from, from um, uh, basically stomach acid as a nine-month-old, causing his esophagus to become so swollen that he would puke every time he ate anything. And so he was not getting enough fluid in his system or food to thrive. And he was at his six-month weight 
at nine months. And my wife and I have been telling the doctor for, this is our third kid, you know, we know what spitting up is compared to vomiting, but the doctor said, no, just spitting up, kids do that. Don't worry about it. Then we finally, uh, after being into a number of different appointments, for some reason at the nine month appointment, it's like then he finally compared his weight to his six month weight because it was the routine nine month appointment. I said, oh my God, he's lower than his six month weight. Something's wrong here. And he looked gaunt, you know, and kind of dehydrated and everything. So we got sent down. We went to St. Joe's for a night and they started an IV in his scalp and gave a bunch of fluid. And then we, we went down to Children's and spent like five days in Children's and they did all the same tests over again and confirmed, oh yeah, he has esophagitis, failure to thrive. So they made a special wedge for him to lay on and then had this NG tube in and fed him like crazy through this NG tube while they were giving him, you know, like Prevacid to kind of reduce his acid reflux stuff. And, uh, and so then we were sent home with the same wedge, had to have little straps on him, you know, and keep him up in, in bed and had two diapers on him at night. Not like two full diapers, but a diaper like this big, what looked like a pad, you know, inside of his diaper. And, uh, and we'd put him in that and I would have to replace this NG tube frequently with him. And it was a little tiny yellow one, you know, and I'd go through his nose and he would hate it. He would just start, Argh! he would start grunting against it and getting mad. And then he'd start crying really loud, you know, and I'd have to wait and wait for a certain time and then shove, you know, while Heather's holding his head down and his body down, you know, like shoving this, God, he just hated it. And, um, so down it would finally go, and a couple times, I swear to God, he was coughing like crazy. I must have got him in his lungs, you know. So then I had to pull it back and, <coughs> and then, like, get it down in the right spot, and then I had to make sure I get stomach contents before I ever introduced any fluid in through that tube because I did not want it in his lungs. So um, it always showed nice fluid in there, though. I was always able to draw back bile-type fluid and know I'm in the right place. And we hook him up. He'd wake up with a diaper that was ridiculously full, you know, like just, just full of pee. He must have peed like constantly all night long. And he got all of his weight back in like a month of doing that. He, he was back up to normal weight and totally fine. And his esophagus was able to heal and all was good. But it was kind of scary for a while. But I don't think you'll be called to those because most of the time parents know how to do it. It'll only be a struggle that you get called to and they're like, oh, I'm just... I'm at my wit's end. I've been trying to put this NG tube in forever. And you might decide just to take them to the hospital, let the nurses deal with it. But if you were comfortable trying it, um, you might be able to try it there on scene. There used to be someone who lived up off of Iowa Heights Drive at the end of the lake off Park Road. And that kid, um, I must have put his NG tube in probably four different times. It was a long drive all the way down. EMTs had already been on scene for like 20 minutes, you know, by the time we got there. And, and uh, he was a, a kid that was like a, a big torso, but little tiny limbs, definitely had some sort of um, birth defects. I think it was cerebral palsy with some other stuff, like so had been hypoxic during birth and it had significant brain damage. And his mom was like awesome, had a ventilator, had a stoma, had all this stuff going on that, that needed suctioning quite a bit. And uh, she was just an amazing person, but frequently had to call because she, it was just so much to manage. So you might end up on those calls, but hopefully not too often. And, and in that case, are nutrients being received exclusively by the nasogastric tube? Yep. So there's no oral following, nothing like that? Well, they can, though. They can, yeah, my son would want to eat regular food sometimes, too, and he'd be able to eat right next to that tube going down. 
and we had to tape it with really good tape right along his face here because it had to be like taped right next to his nose because if, if he could get a hold of it with his fingers, he'd pull that damn tube all the way out oh. over and over again. Like he'd pull amazing, so we'd have it taped right there, taped here, and then taped somewhere else, and, and then we'd have the pigtail we could get to, but oh my God, he just hated that thing. So all day long, we'd have to worry about him pulling it out, and then at night, then we'd be able to hook it up and use it, but during the day, he was actually eating regular food. He would find those little tiny pebbles, you know, from the from the prevacid, we take a capsule and we put it into his applesauce or whatever food we're eating, and we would we would feed it to him, and then he'd sit there and he and he'd spit out each little <laughs> tiny individual pebble of those. <laughs> God, irritating, irritating. Um, so hypothetically, we can give medications through an NG tube. So let's say, and the one situation I can think of would be someone that needs D10, and you cannot get an IV on them. And you're thinking, maybe I can get an NG tube down this person and actually squirt that D10 into their gut. Probably not going to happen. Because what do you have before that? You have um, glucagon that you could, you know, mix up, give IM, and then wait for them to come out of it. So typically you're going to be fine with that. But the creative medic, you know, for whatever reason, whatever scenario you're in, it might be an option. So. You really don't want to yeah, you really, I do not want to transport this guy. I'm going to pull that NG tube out. As soon as he starts coming around, he won't even know it was in. <laughs> but as far as other meds, I cannot think of you guys giving other meds this way. Because if you're thinking of Tylenol for a kid, you can give it rectally, right? Like you wouldn't need to give an NG tube to give liquid Tylenol down. Um, I can't think of other meds besides D10 that you would ever have to give that way. Some people might say charcoal, but... Um, but we don't give charcoal to someone who's unresponsive because we're worried about them vomiting. So we wouldn't be giving charcoal that way. They used to, they used to, you know, have someone intubated, a big fat tube down there for gastric lavage. They'd shove a bunch of charcoal down there, let it sit for a while, and they'd actually suction it all back out with a big tube like that big. And that, that used to be the common for overdoses. And then they decided that was probably not the right thing to do for most of your overdoses anymore. Um, they're just talking about withdrawing until you get gastric fluids. Oh, no, no, yeah, that's definitely some fluid they're introducing to a mannequin, probably. Uh, question for you. Mm -hmm. These pictures in the book, like... They're old? Well, not, th not necessarily. Like, a lot of these procedures look like people are actually, like, receiving some sort of... Like, there's a guy who's, like, you know, getting a central line in this book, and you're like, is he, like, really old? They pay him to do that? Sorry, that's... A, I've seen question. central lines done in the hospital on an alert patient. Oh, my God, it looks horrible. It looks horrible. We don't do central lines anymore, so you don't have to worry about learning that, but we... we don't do that at all? No, because we have an I.O. line now. We choose I.O. Yes, yes. Jugular is not a central line, so it's still considered a peripheral line. Okay. Have you ever done Yes. Uh, no, I've done a bunch of subclavians on codes years ago before we had IOs. And yeah, it is. It is going in right at the the curve of the clavicle, so right in underneath that curve right there. 
and you are aiming towards the sternal notch right here, so your needle is going towards this position, and you're diving in underneath that clavicle, and you're aspirating, aspirating, aspirating until you get in, and then you go a little bit further, and then you have to try to advance your catheter over, and almost every time, that stupid catheter would not make it through. It would not advance properly. So my feeling was that, that we frequently had, because it's a big long one, we have the, uh, it's in the orange box there, the, uh, the big needle that we would use. It is, uh, it's, it's a big enough size that the needle is pretty long at the end of it before the catheter begins. And we would get far enough to get a nice flash, but not advance far enough to get the sleeve catheter all the way into the vessel before we tried to advance. And it would just bump up against the vessel and make a big bloody mess in there. And, but again, they were codes. We, we didn't do that on someone that was alive. We wouldn't have a need that, to start an IV that badly on someone that was still alive, typically. But I've seen the hospital do it. Um, let's see. Rectal administration. Um, I was going to show you guys the idea of the small rectal, oops, if you guys had this tube, see how many openings there is in it? Mm -hmm. It just is too darn many openings So uh, for the NG tube. So usually when someone is trying to give uh, medication rectally, some folks, I gotta, I gotta admit, a lot of people will simply go, where's that syringe that I had a minute ago with the, the tip on it? Do you guys? Right here? Oh, it's in there again. Oh, oh put it away, nice. Um, so let me say, a 14, I believe. No, it's gonna be too big. See how the ends here have just enough openings that you could actually get that into a rectum and not have too many openings like the NG tube. The NG tube, the openings come clear back to here. You don't want to shove something up someone's rectum that far. You want to just shove it up a little way so that you get the just enough of them there. So 18, potentially sharp, which is what I was trying to avoid on the regular catheter too. Now this one's too, it's like an extreme difference. This one barely fits on there. You need like an eight or a 10. I need like an eight, but we don't carry that anymore. We decided to get rid of these in-between sizes. And then this, you gotta figure, if you lube that up, is it too compliant to fit up a rectum? It'll probably go up a pediatric rectum, well, probably go up anyone's rectum, but. Um, <laughs> you make anything go anywhere. <laughs> take a look at that, and feel how your friction fit is there. You need it to be tight enough to push it on. Suppositories to adults, although they do make adult-sized suppositories. And with this whole sepsis awareness that we're getting, I think the nation's getting more and more aware of sepsis now, that we may find that we start carrying adult-dose rectal Tylenol. The reason for that would be that if you have someone that's altered and cannot take oral Tylenol, um, an adult, then that gives you a, a way to try to introduce Tylenols to get their fever down and to try to start treating them early rather than waiting until they get to the hospital. Where does sepsis uh, 
patient last shift, and his temperature was uh, low. And I saw after the call, yeah, after the call, it was uh, one of the septal or sepsis um, indicators, standards. right? Yeah, I said either a temperature below 96 or above 100.4. Right. And so we want to give Tylenol for uh, a low temperature, right? Unless, is there another property of Tylenol that just we would get for uh, no, because Tylenol otherwise is just to manage pain. So it would help with pain, but it does not offer the anti-inflammatory like, like NSAIDs, aspirin, and uh, Advil's do. So no, there would be no reason to give it there. The only reason we're going to give Tylenol for our purposes is to reduce fever and, and pain. But I mean, yeah. yeah. We have others. We have better yeah, so let's say that person has a sepsis and their temperature is low. Did they complain of pain? Maybe, but don't, don't give it if their temperature is low. You can give Tylenol IV, like the hospital could give Tylenol IV. They have IV Tylenol, yeah, and that's going to be so much more effective than anything we're going to give. We don't have IV options for Tylenol. Dr. Wayne said that his IV Tylenol was very effective and he thought it was really good for pain. Cap, we used to have those little uh, Tylenol like shooters. Elixirs, right? Okay. We still have those. We still do. They, they will be in the pediatric kit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that you could draw up in a syringe and draw up just the amount you need and be able to squirt it into a child's mouth, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would it, that be translated to an adult as well? Could we draw up Oh, there's so much. I think the volume is so great to give to an adult that by the time you're trying to give a thousand milligrams, you've got those are 325s, I think. You'd be looking at one, two, three full containers of it. And if they could swallow all of that, they could have probably swallowed the pill with a fluid, you know, like water or something. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, and actually, there is a rectal dose for uh, Tylenol. It says. Rectal dose, 20 milligrams per kilogram for all patients. Okay, good. So that may translate to us getting adult-sized suppositories some days, someday. We have, I think, 160 milligrams is the pediatric-sized suppository. So if you think of 20 per kilogram and you've got an 80-pound person or 80-kilogram person, so someone that weighs somewhere around 100-some pounds, 150 pounds or so, 80 kilograms, and you say, okay, 80 kilograms times 20, 1,600, so how many, 160, that's 10 suppositories you'd have to shove up that adult person's butt. So, of the, of the pediatric size. But the adult ones, would you'd be able to do that with one. So we just don't carry that yet. Do you guys? I think we do. I think you guys do too. I think I remember hearing. You have adult sizes, yeah. And you still have the pediatric size too, yeah. <laughs> I vote no. Yeah. Oh. I just replaced that audio. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, packaging for medications: glass ampules, single dose, single dose or multi-dose vials, um, uh, non-constituted medication, which we do have one of those. That'll be our That's the powder and that you mix. Yep. Yeah, and so that will be our um, glucagon. Thank you. Um, cyano kit? Cyano kit, no. It's separate, right? Cyano kit has a, a pill, but
but it also has epi in it. No, not cyan. No, I'm, I'm thinking of the, what did they call those, those other kits, the epi? They're not EpiPens, they're something else. They were called something, not cyanokit. I know what you're saying, you're right. Cyanokit is, uh, needs to be basically reconstituted. Okay. It is a, a, a powder inside the big glass container and we have to inject water in there to get it mixed up. So yeah, there's two of them. Um, Pre-filled syringes, which we will use a lot. Those are all of our cardiac medications ready to go. Uh, and, and then IV fluids in bags. Let's see here. Glass ampules. Our epi used to come just like this. This used to be our epi. And we decided that this epi was, uh, I don't know, it, it's dangerous to open. A couple people actually, when opening, breaking them, would actually, you know, not put the little little four by four over it the way this is showing and would tear their glove and actually injure their finger and end up bleeding from opening an ampule. So they weren't perfect for that. And they had a long expiration date. I think that was one of the attractions, you know, is that they're, they're packaged like that. They freaking last a long time and they are manageable. You could use it, but we didn't have filtered needles either. So there was always this concern that if there was a little shard of glass or something in there, we might actually aspirate that with our needle and then inject it into the person. So in order to avoid having to get filtered needles, we've decided not to have ampules anymore. The um, amiodarone used to also be in glass ampules like this. So we used to have two medications in them, but we don't anymore. But if you see them, this is how you manage them. Um, you guys, there will frequently be medication up in that top little glass portion there. And the best way, a lot of people would sit there and try to flick that little glass ampule and try to get the medication from the top to drop down into the bottom. But the easiest way to do it, and I saw this with the uh, anesthesiologist at the hospital with these big giant glass ampules with a milky white fluid in there. I can't remember what the name of that med is. They just do this twirling motion and it would send all the stuff from the top right down into the bottom really easy. So just sw swirl around like that and your medication will go down in. Um, easier than trying to flick it because it could take forever to flick and there'd still be some up in there. It's kind of a hassle, so. All righty. Oh. By the way, they frequently show you tipping up your, uh, your ampule in order to draw out medication, and it, it works. It works with a needle, but if you try to use it, where's the uh, little, here it is. If you try to use it with this, because we don't use needles hardly anymore, and you flip your ampule up and you stick this in, because this is larger, it will break the surface tension in a way that the needle wouldn't, and it'll all dribble down the side of here potentially. So you'll want to actually still hold your ampule up like that and then keep tipping your ampule until you get that little low spot right at the neck, you know, and draw out all your medication like that. Yeah, that's one handed deal. Yeah, that's a one-handed deal. All right. <laughs> okay, here's the most common. I got tons of these medications uh, in the other room there. What's our time like right now? It is 10 to Shit, we only got 20 minutes. Fuck, I talk too much. I'm not making it through my, my slideshow here. Remove from it. We don't use it. So in the morning, make sure your stuff hasn't broken off inside the packaging. Like if in your, in your little uh, dividers and everything, you find a medication without the top, 
Simply remove it, throw it in the expired drug box, and grab a new one that has a complete top. The bummer is that you have no, you can't be sure that this hasn't been emptied and filled with water. We just, we should not use a medication that's already open like that. Well, narcs for sure. I mean, then you gotta, you gotta define that as broken or destroyed or whatever. You guys have to, have to uh, log any kind of medication that's been tampered with, uh, if it's a narcotic. You did. Was one removed? Yeah, one of the tops popped off, and Joe, uh, Joe and I went to Krista. And yep. Krista did all of her magic and yep. opened up the ball and gave us a new one. Mm-hmm. Right on. Um, as you guys look at these, um, here's another thing where I want you guys to know your, know your equipment. I've got in here. Okay, there's green. Do you guys have these on your rigs too? Green means that there isn't an arrow in the end. This is a green one. There's no blue little arrow in the end of it, okay? Um, the blue ones have a blue arrow in the end of them. So that is vial access. So usually if you guys are getting into one of these, it's good to make sure that it is twisted on all the way. Sometimes you'll get them out, you'll just pull the end off, you'll access your vial, and as you're drawing back medication, some of the damn, you get little air bubbles forming in here because this wasn't very tight at the hub. You're actually drawing medication, but you're also drawing some air around the hub. So when you guys are getting ready to draw out of a vial like this, you'll wanna just pull out your vial access one, but before you pull it off like that, just verify that it's tight because that'll keep you from drawing extra air in, which is always a hassle. And then, again, so if you're, you're gonna access a, a vial, then you wanna get the blue ones, but you also, this is a green one, you wanna get the blue ones, but you also wanna pick the size that you need. So for this vial, I have um, 10 milliliters. So the amount of volume here, cc's and milliliters are the same. So I have a 10 cc or 10 milliliter syringe here. This should represent this right now, all 10 milliliters. So if for instance this was five milliliters, you would draw up five cc's before you attempted to draw it out. The reason is we're gonna push air into here as we draw medication out. So I have a 10, so I'm gonna pull 10 right there, and then I'm going to pull this off of here Break that off, and if I break off a fresh plastic one, I don't wipe it with alcohol, okay? I'll push you this. In test, world? You, in test world, it still says to do it. Okay. Yeah, and I'm, I was disappointed to see that, but um, so yeah, you would say in test world, you're gonna say you're gonna wipe the top with alcohol before you, yeah. So. That's a good clarification, um, as you get ready to give this, you can't just shove air into here without holding on to this. So you're going to hold on to the vial. You're going to push a little bit of air in. You don't want to push all 10 cc's of air in. You might have the, I've seen it before where the rubber piece in here actually falls out. You could push 10 cc's of air in there and actually, actually break the, the little rubber piece can, and you'll have fluid all over your hands, you know. So just push in a little bit 
and kind of seesaw back and forth like this, pulling out your medication. And you can see it starting to draw down the side there when you're getting close. And then I'm trying not to get the air, so I actually have to pull this tip out a little ways so it's not as deep in there. And then draw out. There's usually a little bit of extra volume in here, in which case uh, that is okay. You don't have to go pull everything out of the vial because they're anticipating that you may not be able to get it all. When you're doing this process right here, if you get rid of the air and you draw back to the full 10, then you've also got this part primed. So when you have this particular access cannulon here, you've primed this as well in case when you're trying to deliver this into a bag to uh, say put your dopamine into a bag so you can end up mixing and hanging your bag. This is primed already so you know you're getting all of that fluid. If you need to remove this now uh, and then you're hooking it up to something else, if there's air that's going into something else, you might think you're, just be aware, this is full of, of fluid now and not full of air, I guess is my point. Um, let's see here. So that's, that's what you do to draw up your medication. When you were done drawing up your medication, you would say magnesium sulfate. I drew up all five grams of this medication. So there's five grams in here right now. And that five grams, you're gonna show that to your partner especially if they're the ones delivering the medication, you're gonna hand it to them with the vial. And you will have confirmed your six rights, right? It's the right drug, it's the right date. This is expired, five of 20. No, yeah, no. that's not expired yet. Why do I have this one in here? Um, it came in this bag from, it was in the expired deal. Oh, because oh, the, top was, the top was off, that's why. What is that drug? Uh, magnesium. So this is typically used for cardiac or preeclamptic seizures for a pregnant lady. Um, and then torsades, yeah, your cardiac use for torsades. Um, okay, so if, for instance, you wanted to give two grams of this medication, because you can access this vial again if you needed to, then you would not pull out more than you needed. You would only pull out what you needed. If you, with the, uh, the vial being filled with fluid, the, the cannula there, mm -hmm. um, is that something you're shooting for? Are you accounting for that in your medication administration? I am. If you don't have that, then you have air, and then you are injecting that into the port of an ad set. Is that a concern? I, I don't think you have to worry too much because I don't think there's a very much volume there, except when you're thinking about epinephrine. So if you're thinking about, I want to give 0.5 IM of something, and I want to verify that I'm giving exactly 0.5 with my little 1cc syringe that is super skinny and, and very distinct on how much you're giving, then this volume of air may make a difference in something like that. So um, be aware when you're switching a needle over to this for your Epi IM injection, or you'd probably use our new um, retractable uh, syringes now in which case then it would be in that syringe, right? Uh, it would be in the needle part already because you would have drawn it up with that needle. And so then you know when I push from here to here, I'm actually getting exactly that amount of medication. So with these vial access, sorry, yeah. with these vial access syringes, it comes with a, a metal needle in it and that's how you withdraw the medication? Uh, that's a plastic, yeah. But it comes off. Can you go back over the dark? Was my question. You can. 
If the dart is still in there, you can go back over the dart. So I took two and I want two more. Yep. And now, if the, dart, the if the dart fell all the way in there or the dart isn't accessible anymore, then you have a problem. Or if you feel like, you know what, I've, that's a contamination source right there because this fell onto the floor or something, yeah. I don't want to use this anymore okay. because I can't, unless I pull this out and then try to wipe it with alcohol, I don't want to access, access this one again. But if this sat right there on the action area like this mm -hmm. and it didn't touch anything else, I would feel comfortable doing this right back over the top and in again. With, with Willie a couple shifts ago, I can now can't remember what medication it was, but he said there's a specific medication that has been having an issue with the rubber puncture access site, mm -hmm. where it, if you use the vial access cannula, it'll push it out. Push so it down would, into the vial? Yeah, so he changed it to a needle okay. to access it. Yeah, that'd be a bummer if it was doing that. I can't remember what medication it was. Some of these were so strong, that people were able to get with the same vial access cannula, but now it's a blunt one because it doesn't have the blue tip in it. They were able to actually punch through it with that, but this one looks like it won't allow me to. So you should have a blue dart probably each time you do it. No, I went on a blue dart again. Yeah. So you guys take a look at that. What's our time like here? Okay, we've got 10 more minutes. Um, it shows a needle here. We will have our hidden needle ones. It does show wiping it with alcohol each time, even after they broke the plastic tip off. So testing-wise, you're going to be wise to say that you wipe it with alcohol each time. <clears throat> if we use one, we throw it away. We will not keep our, our vials again. Here, they're showing the... Um, the, uh, let's see, yeah, this is a medication we don't use, but it is trying to show reconstitution. When we open up, do we have a current, the new kind of, um, um, what is a diabetic med again? I keep forgetting. Glucagon. glucagon. The new kind of glucagon comes in a little box now instead of that long orange um, container that we used to have. So um, either way, we are doing the same process here where we're drawing up the medication and then we have to stick it into the other vial and reconstitute. So you might have to take one of these and take off the, um, the one that you had used to, to draw up the fluid and put a new one of these vial access cannulas onto your syringe so that you have a new blue dart to go up in there and reconstitute the medication. These are available on the rigs too. Know where your equipment is. This is in the, the packaging portion. Usually in the back one, there'll be a bunch of extras of these. Okay, there's the old one. So look, go ahead and take those two vials out of there. Oh, so this offers the needle already, yes. Do you know what our new one offers? Have you guys seen the new box? I don't know, does it come with a, its own syringe like this? Okay. I think it's just two vials. It's from that's so why I thought it was two, just two vials, but I'm not sure. So this one, it has its own needle. You're just trying to uh, push this fluid into there, draw it back and forth a few times, kind of go both directions with it until you feel like you've reconstituted all of that. 
and then you're pulling it all into this side. And this needle then can be used for your IM injection. Oh. And obviously you can't even change it out, right? That needle's built in, so here's a potential sure, risk of a uh, sharp poking you. You don't do the, uh, yeah, the, the new method of capping. If you do cap any time, don't let anyone else be a part of your process. It's one human that is recapping. <laughs> not yeah, not. Yes. <laughs> so, silver tips are the needles, blue tips are the, the arrows. Where are the greens? The greens are just a blunt access cannula. So that is just the ability. I don't even know very much about why we need the greens, you know what I mean? I even had suggested at one point that we stop even using the greens because if we had a blue, we could always take the end of the blue and we could just have it on the end of your syringe and you could just flick it off like that with something that just came out of the packaging. You could flick the blue arrow out of there and then still use this as a blunt access cannula. So I'm trying to think of... Yeah, I'm trying to think of the reason for um, the access cannulas because frequently you are unscrewing the cannula portion in order to hook it up directly to your, um, your, your IV tubing, right? You're going to hook directly to it with a lure lock instead of even using that to punch through things. Um, the green access cannula can be used to punch through on our old ad sets. They had a little white ring on the rubber kind of side ports. There'd be a little rubber side port. If it had a white ring around it, it meant that you could punch through the green access cannula without the blue dart, because you don't want blue dart going into your tubing, right? So you could punch through and administer medications that way. But all of our medics now are getting used to simply using the, um, unscrewing this and using the lure lock mm -hmm. for access now, which is the way we should be doing it. So it's kind of funny, we keep changing how we are doing things based on new equipment coming out and then maybe not staying up to speed on what we should. Looking at those adjuncts that you're talking about, blue, green, all those, there's like an orange one or a gold one that has little clips on the sides of it? Ah, uh, yeah, and that will come in every one of your 60 drip CC bags, okay? Okay. So those are... Micro yeah, the micro drip. And that's for you being able to use that to hook up to the main line that's already hung because your micro drip so is micro usually drip set and a macro set and yes. micro to macro. Right. But again, we can use the lure lock now instead of that. Where's the ones I brought today? So this might not that's even not be it. necessary if you have a complete lure lock system. Um, right. Yeah. It, it, they rarely get used anymore. Okay. And some medics may still use them because they're thinking of it. Where's the other shit I brought today? 